Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Magnus Nordenman, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hey, thanks for having me. I guess we should get this out of the way. You are doing this podcast as an individual, as an author, but not as an employee of your current company. Uh, should Correct. we mention your company's name? Or we, I guess we don't. Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to currently work for Lockheed Martin, uh, a great company, but you know, always always better safe than sorry to sort of footstop that. I, I am not representing my company here. I'm, I'm representing myself as a, as a private citizen and as, and as an author. We should also mention that you and I connected through John Watts. So how, how do you know John? Um, so John and I uh, uh, bumped into each other in the DC think, uh, think tank community, the, the Atlantic Council, where I was the director for the Transatlantic Security Initiative, doing doing a lot of the NATO work, and uh, uh, and John Watts uh, uh, was one of our one of our one of our senior fellows, and and he and I uh, he and I hit it off really well, and we we worked together quite a bit, and then. You know, we did a lot of, you know, shooting the breeze in the office, talking about strategy and history and Australia and Sweden and the United States and and, and so on. And, and, you know, after that, we have we have remained friends. John is a uh, is a lovely person. I, I, I'll tell he you, I, I started this podcast a couple of years ago and I always ask folks, hey, anybody else would be good for the podcast? He he loves helping me with the podcast just because he's such a, a, a nice, decent, lovely guy. Yeah, yeah no, he, he, he's good people for sure. Yeah, and I, I do have to mention, uh, and I don't know if John enjoys hearing me say this, but he was actually in my Army National Guard unit. I was a battalion commander, and he was a, a captain at the time in 03, uh, I, I guess in the Australia's equivalent to the uh, reserves. And we had him uh, actually documented as part of our unit. And I made sure he went around to me all the time. And I said, I'd like you to meet my Australian captain, John Watson. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, so you had you had your personal Australian liaison. No, but I mean it's um, you know that's certainly you know even when you're not around, uh, you know that you know certainly John John refers to that to that experience as something that he enjoys, and that's that's definitely a a reference point for him that he that he likes to talk about. So I've 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 heard some of those stories and the the things that were done to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, Adam Frost had a lot to do with that, a lot. Very cool. So you grew up in Sweden. Tell me what it was like growing up in Sweden. Yeah, so I did grow up in Sweden. So yeah, so I I, uh, I came over here when I was uh, when I was eighteen. So sort of so from you know zero zero to eighteen. You know, interesting. So we're talking sort of you know eighties, eighties and nineties, um, which is you know interesting. Uh, which is probably this sort of especially sort of um, tranquil and comfortable uh, comfortable period for Sweden. Um, and then certainly sort of in terms of my certainly in terms of my, you know, my own family life also sort of incredibly stable. Um, and then actually sort of when I left, you know, things started changing um, in a sense of sort of, uh, you know, Sweden opened up when I, when I, it's funny, my kids, my kids don't believe me for a second. And certainly Sweden, you know, Sweden was and is a democracy. But when I was growing up, there were, there were two TV channels, PBS equivalent, you know, channel one and a PBS equivalent channel two. Uh, and that and that was it. There was, you know, there was you no know, cable was extremely rare and sort of exotic and only a couple of people had it. If you wanted to sort of watch, you know, Hollywood movies, you have to go down to the video store and get yourself a cassette. You know, that was not what was on TV, you know, things like that. So, so in that sense, you know, a very, a very sort of 
more of a sheltered country. But, but you know, again, obviously, don't, you know, don't misunderstand me. There was, you know, clearly freedom of speech and you could get these things. The government was your parent and your parent was sort of looking out for you, making sure you didn't watch too much Hollywood violence, kind of a, <laughs> you know, kind of a, kind of a thing. Uh, so so a, ver a very sort of benign, stable uh, childhood with, with, not, with not too much Hollywood violence, you know, in it. Uh, but then actually it's interesting sort of when when i left sort of sweden again you know you know tv got liberalized then you had all you know there were more commercial channels and you know so now you know if you go to sweden you know sort of the you know the media availability for example is exactly the same it is it is over here um, um right so it, it was this um almost sort of unique period in, in uh in sweden's history sort of 80s uh 80s 90s um uh, which was before sort of globalization the fall of the wall uh you know european integration and uh and 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 so on so yeah no so you know on the one hand fond memories but like my my kids don't buy it this is like what do you what do you mean only two tv channels what what do you mean it's actually there's a funny there's a funny story so at that time there was only disney one hour it was only one hour of disney cartoons every year and it was on christmas eve <laughs> um it was almost uh, it like was, a, a gift from the government to the yeah, yeah 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 and it was almost like sort of like you know like football on thanksgiving you have to watch it right um uh, you know so like yes yeah, so like the entire the entire country sat down on christmas eve at 3 p.m to watch donald duck and mickey mouse uh and it was the same it was the same clips every year uh but it didn't matter because it's you know it's donald duck and mickey mouse and and otherwise, if you want, you know, if you want a Donald and Mickey, you have to go to the video store and go, you know, um, uh, go rent yourself like a VHS tape or something like that. But that was, yeah, so it became this national thing watching Donald Duck on Christmas Eve. Wow. So when you were, kin I, I, I guess you guys had a kindergarten through yep. 12th grade sort of notion uh -huh. there. Were, were you a dedicated student more than anything else? Were you more of an explorer, explorer of the world outside of school? How did you think of yourself uh, growing up? Wow, that's a good that's a good question. So, hmm, I was <laughs> in study results. I was probably average, but I did um, I did like to sort of challenge the teachers uh, and, and sort of do do my own you know do my own studying on the side and then sort of go back and call them on it, um, mm -hmm. right? You know whether that was in you know history or social studies or or what have you, and sort of, hey, I, I, I read this other book, uh, and it says, you know, X, Y, and Z, and that's not what you taught me, um, you know, kind of a thing. But but again, in terms of my, you know, it's not reflected in my grades, I, you know, grade, grade wise, I was a very, I was a very average student, but, uh, but yeah, but I did, uh, I did frustrate a number of teachers by, uh, uh, by, by sort of, I read this other book, and that's different from what you taught me last week. Uh, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> was it intellectual curiosity? Was it challenging authority? Was it a mix of those two notions plus other things? Um, I think sort of challenging conventional wisdom. I wouldn't call it challenging authority. It's interesting. I'm, I'm actually, as, as an individual, I'm, I'm actually, or as a person, I'm actually pretty risk averse. And to be risk averse and challenge authority, you know, that's not a great, you know, combo because, because there's lots of risk with challenging challenging authority but sort of but but sort of intellectually i enjoy sort of challenging uh conventional wisdom and i enjoy the sort of minority report um, um and so on and later in high school um i actually went to um i went to high school in a, in a university town 
60,000 people and it was you know very much dominated by the university so even though I was you know I was not a university student but the sort of you know the university very much sort of colored the sort of the, the city culture and so on so it was sort of an intellectual town so I, I was actually a I was actually sort of a, a, a high school hangaround for one of the sort of university debating societies and, and their their motto was your opinion doesn't matter your argument does Mm. Um, um, and, and they would bring in all these crazy speakers that would argue crazy things. Uh, but it was all, you know, it was all sort of more, can they, you know, can they build a coherent argument around whatever it is that they're, that you're arguing for? So I think I was sort of colored yeah, again, I wasn't a university student there, but I, but I think I was sort of colored by the university vibe, um, if you will, in, in, uh, in high school. So that was, that was something that I, that I very much enjoyed. Yeah. Debate is they're not a ton of people at the high school age that are attracted to it, but the ones that are, are very, very interested in becoming better at debating and arguing. Right. Right. Um, yeah. No, and again, you know, because it was a university town, right. And, and again, it's it sort of, you know, you, you know, so, you know, people reading books and they were quoting authors and you sort of hear about it. So you go read that book too. And um, you know, there was some, you know, there was some university student and he seemed smart. And he had, you know, he had read this book. So I'm, I'm going to go to the library and find that book too. And, uh, and so, yeah, so it sort of, it sort of rubbed off on me. So I, I took Latin in school and I know the name Magnus means great. I have this impression <laughs> that 50% of boys, baby boys are named Magnus in Sweden. Is that accurate? <laughs> I, I, perhaps a little bit of an overstatement. Yeah, but it's not a, it's not an uncommon name, but what, what would be the, yeah, it probably it isn't quite a it, it isn't quite a Michael. Um, uh, yeah, but it's but it's certainly not sort of eyebrow racing. There, there's there's quite a few Magnuses running around uh, in <laughs> in Sweden. All right, so uh, you came to this country when you were 18. What what was the situation that brought you here? Well, actually, so um, so so two things. So, so I I had traveled back and forth quite a bit before because I was also active in um, uh, youth politics in um, in Sweden. I was, I was a member of sort of of the the youth arm, if you will, of of, uh, of Sweden's second largest party, um, and and in, you know in Sweden and in Europe, sort of parties tend to be far more sort of organized than it is here in the U.S., where the sort of the parties are almost sort of more like tent-like big structures, and people go in, you know, and, and you sort of almost you run under the name of a party, but that's sort of your affiliation. But but in in Sweden and in Europe, obviously, you know. There are parties and there are members and the sort of the parties organize the campaigns and the parties figure out who needs to be nominated. And they also tend to come with um, sort of youth organizations, sort of, you know, high, high school and sort of university students. And, and that's a way, you know, part, it's a great way to get election workers to run around with flyers. Um, and part also obviously becomes a recruiting base for when the party needs candidates for, you know, local city council or parliament, you know, and, you know, what, um, what have you. Um, so as part of that, I, I'd actually participated in political exchanges and I'd come to the US a couple of times to sort of observe political campaigns in the US uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and elections in the US. So I'd been over here a couple of times already, um, obviously, you know, was, was fascinated by, by this country on, on a lot of different levels, so, you know, socially, culturally, economically, you know, politically. Uh, and a lot of those exchanges took, you know, took, uh, took place in Virginia. So Northern Virginia, Richmond, uh, and, and, and so on. So I, you know, I, I was, I was generally familiar. Uh, <laughs> and one time when I was over here, 
I was looking for a postcard to send home uh, to some friends that I was sort of flipping through in some store that, you know, had the sort of, and I tried to find something with a local connection. Uh, and I found a postcard uh, that had a bunch of sort of images of Virginia, of which of which one uh, was an image of the Virginia Military Institute. Uh, and that seemed neat and, and sort of and, <laughs> and, and exotic. Uh, and I looked at and, and obviously, you know, I found, you know, that's a college, that's a, you know, that's a military college, which was something that I was, that I was interested in. Uh, and so I came, I came to, came to the U.S. to uh, attend the Virginia Military Institute, um, uh, based, based on a postcard image. So, uh, wait a minute. So you saw the image and then I imagine you did some research on what VMI was all about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your dad, uh, and I read this from the Ford in your book, your dad was in the Swedish Navy uh and you certainly had interest in joining the military as well but you had uh a hearing challenge yeah. in one of your ears which would yeah. you from joining the military so if you knew you couldn't join the military why why vmi um so you know so you know so, you know, so i i'm from a military family and i sort of you know grew up around the name although you know my 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 dad as a personality is not especially military at least on the sort of in the traditional sense of you know what you you know what you would imagine a sort of career military person to be but you know again i certainly sort of grew up around that um i actually spent <laughs> um a lot of um, um a lot of sort of you know school vac um you know um you know between between semesters uh my dad would actually and i would actually go live with him on base uh, so we actually we actually lived a couple of hours away from base and then my dad would sort of commute in for the week and then come home on the uh, so he was sort of geo batch if you will um, and when I, you know, between semesters, he would just, you know, bring me and I would actually like, you know, hang out with him on base for a week, uh, and, and sort of live in the BOQ, uh, or live aboard ship, uh, with him. So, so not only sort of, you know, being in a military family, but actually, like I said, sort of spending time around the military, um, you know, as a, uh, as a, uh, as a kid, um, um, but, uh, but I still sort of, um, yeah, uh, but then for sort of, for, for medical reasons, you know, couldn't, couldn't pursue a military career. Um, but still had an interest in sort of in, in doing something different, right? If you're going to go to, you know, if, if you're going to travel this far to go to college, you might as well do something different. You know, I had a university 15 minutes from my house. If I'm going to travel across the Atlantic, you know, I might as well do something different uh, rather than rather than go to the place that, you know, was 15, that, you know, 15 minutes down the, uh, down the way. Um, so I think it was sort of the, uh, the uniqueness of it. Um, and then also, I think, you know, another one, let's not, Let's not kid ourselves. I think sort of, you know, guys in, you know, 18, 19, you know, want to prove yourself, uh, you know, can you, you know, can you do it, um, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a thing. So that's how I ended up at, uh, at, at VMI. So once you had done all of your research, but you had not yet started, you had not gone to campus to become right. a, a rat officially. What was your impression of VMI before it all started? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I, yeah, so I, I guess I had, you know, um, uh, well, I mean, and this is, I think, you know, it's true for a lot of military institutions that that's certainly again, the, uh, yeah, and, and people sometimes tend to forget that sort of you, you know, a lot of pictures from the off school course, a lot of uh, off school course, a lot of, you know, pictures of people marching in formation, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a school, it's a college, and you, and you actually spend most of your time, uh, you know, mo most of your time in the classroom, right. But you know, that's something, you know, that strikes me, you know, to go slightly off topic. 
that's what you know i find hilarious in sort of hollywood movies about the military and they show a military installation and like everyone is running in formation <laughs> um and it's always like i've actually never been to a military where i've ever seen anyone run in formation <laughs> right you know what i'm talking about though right every movie Absolutely. there's like yeah yeah um or that or the fact that like people are running around armed uh, i also you know be, be, beyond the sort of gate guards i've never seen people armed in a military installation uh, right, I mean, oh, exercises about sort of in barracks, so to speak. You know, you you know, you don't see people running around armed. Um, um, so, um, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, but, but going going back to going back to VMI, um, yes, I mean, so yes, I I think I you know probably had sort of almost a, but to some degree that's because that was the image they wanted to show, uh, was almost this sort of you know basic training slash boot camp. Uh, right, because those are the dramatic pictures, and that's what you know people are attracted to when, uh, you know, pictures of you sitting in a classroom. You know, they're just not that exciting. Uh, <laughs> you know, even though that's what you do most of the time. Yeah, when you're a rat, there is some time uh, that I imagine you spend outside the classroom going through yep. various fun activities. And and I mentioned outside because the weather in uh, Virginia in August is very yeah. different than I imagine that the. the any weather you had ever experienced uh, back in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's actually one of those, right? You know, we have, um, and I think, you know, everyone has had this experience that like there are just, um, there are certain smells, right? That just sort of, you know, sort of brings you back or reminds you of something. And it's interesting, the, um, uh, you know, whatever, you know, it's, you know, it's a smell that you may have had in your, you know, um, you know, what, you know, what, you know, what your house smelled like or a piece of food or, you know, whatever. But my thing that always sort of makes me sort of sit up is actually the smell of wet grass mm. uh, is sort of the thing that sort of like, it's this smell that just stands out to me. Um, and that's obviously from Lexington, Virginia in sort of August, you know, with the sort of steamy heat and, and you go out for morning PT at like five in the morning. Um, and then you spend an hour rolling in the grass doing push-ups, and, and so, yeah, and, and the sort of, and the smell of wet grass. Um, and it's still this, it's still this smell that just sort of makes me sit up. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I smelled it last week, you know, last week in my backyard and it's just sort of, um, uh, sort of, you know, makes you, you know, yeah, make, makes you stand straight up and it's, yeah. So that, that's, yeah. Um, it still sticks to me sort of, you know, what is it now? 20, uh, no, 24 years later. Yeah. The, the smell of wet grass. It's one of those things. <laughs> makes you think of VMI pushups. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Tell me your memories, both fond and not so fond of being a rat at VMI. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, and this is probably sort of, you know, standard that obviously, you know, the fond that, you know, you, you, you make, you make some great friends, right. Um, and they're sort of, and you, you know, you're with them, you're with them 24 seven and, you know, some of those guys are still my friends. And I said, so, you know, and they were in my wedding and I was in their wedding. And, and in fact, for one of my friends, I was actually a, um, a pallbearer when his when his dad passed away. Uh, wow. Right. So is that, you know, so is that kind of, you know, that, you know, that kind of connection. But on, on other, it's, it's interesting. VMI is VMI is not hard in the sense of sort of that it's so physically strenuous that you can't do it anymore or what have you. Um, it's the grind. It's the fact that it just keeps going. Um, right. I mean, it's sort of you, you start in, as a rat in like August. Um, and they sort of wrap that up by like March the next year. So I mean, so it's it's a long, long period. Um, so in that sense, it's not that they're making you run 15 miles without food. It's not that they're making you do, um, you know, physical training. You know, that's um, uh, that's just sort of unovercomable if you are, 
I would say sort of averagely fit, um, you know, that's not the issue. Uh, the issue is that it just keeps going um, um, and, and sort of never ends. Uh, I mean, it doesn't, but it doesn't feel like it at the, at the time. Um, and then I think also, I mean, it's sort of more, more broadly, I think, you know, VMI is, um, um, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I, you know, I'm obviously a fan of the school and I still go down and visit sometimes and, uh, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer in sort of the concept of that kind of education. Uh, but I would say so on a, you know, on, uh, on VMI's best day, um, you know, the, the school teaches service and selflessness. And, uh, um, uh, and I think an important lesson is sort of, you know, you're supposed to do the right thing, even though there isn't a reward at the end of the day, because that's not the point. The point is to do the right thing. Um, and it teaches, you know, it teaches, you know, what I would call, you know, healthy patriotism and, and citizenship. So that's on a good day. On a on a on a bad day, it can be a very sort of insular and and defensive kind of school, um, uh, which isn't so pretty. And, and and I you know and I say that you know also with an understand that you know no institution is perfect, right? Every you know every institution has good days and 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 bad days. But but yeah, on on a good day, it's a, it's a pretty special place that I think are you know still still teaching sort of key lessons that that I think are important um important for the country uh but yeah but it, it can also be a if it's in that mood uh it, it can also sort of be defensive and insular insular and, and a little snarly if you <laughs> if you will yeah vmi's had an interesting ride the last uh 20 years or so but we, we don't yeah. we don't need to get into the details there uh so to, back to your good day notion uh especially this notion of honor and integrity if you find a penny or a nickel or a quarter on the ground, what, what do you do? Uh, nothing. You leave it there. <laughs> um, no, and, 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 and it's actually, and you know, at the, it, again, it's interesting sort of, um, you know, the different perspectives. I mean, I, I will say when you were there and sort of in it, um, um, it was almost, it was almost sort of scary, um, right? Because sort of, you know, um, even though you haven't done anything wrong, what if something gets misunderstood and then you get rolled then, and that was a big deal, and and, and you know, truly, you you know, you literally could leave your wallet out, and no one would touch it. Um, uh, or you could leave your computer in the library and go for dinner and come back, and nobody would have touched it. But I mean, but I see that you know, um, um, the incredible freedom that came out of that. So, for example, so we would um, uh, test uh, test taking time. Um, we would literally come to the classroom for sort of finals, and um, and the professor would be go to your room and take it if you want to. Um, uh, because, you know, he would trust us that sort of, you're not going to crack your book, book open. You're not going to get your roommate to help you with the final. That's an immense amount of freedom. Uh, right. I mean, you know, that's sort of most college students don't get, right. I mean, sort of, you know, you know how, how many schools can you go to where the professor goes, you, you go take your test whenever and wherever. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, come out. same thing. If you had, if you had a test coming up and you hadn't studied and you went to the professor and said, Hey, sir, ma'am, um, I've been sick the last two days and um, I've been in an infirmary and I just didn't have an opportunity to do this or I've been on guard duty or whatever. Um, the professor, you know, got it. You can take it tomorrow because the professor knew that I was telling the truth rather than ah, you're making this up and you were probably out drinking or didn't feel like studying. Right. So in that sense, sort of in in hindsight, that was an remarkable measure of freedom uh, that we that we were given, uh, you know, because they could, you know, if I said that I was sick for the last two days, that was the truth. Uh, and then I would get another day. Yeah. Um, it, uh, integrity begets trust. Trust begets freedom. 
sort of notion sounds like exactly exactly yeah yeah no so it's sort of incredible not because not you know on the on the outside is sort of this you know if you miss the test you're done and you're not going anywhere and they have monitors in the classrooms to make sure that you're not cheating and uh you know that was that was never an issue um and i mean there were certainly um um you know if there was a meeting that i missed with someone and that person was upset with me and said um you know what what were you doing um i told them what i was doing and if that was the legitimate it would be okay got it um uh, because they knew it was you know i wasn't lying um right and that you know um and that, that's obviously something that you can you know get a lot of yeah so yeah so um in in what what appears to be a very constrained and controlled environment um uh you actually had uh you actually had immense amounts of uh immense amounts of freedom um uh, and i would say also sort of academically you know I, I went to grad school at the university of kentucky which you know i very much enjoyed too and i thought i got a good education but in terms of let, let's call it intellectual freedom and sort of having you know arguments clash in the uh, in the in the classroom um again we might all be wearing uniforms and we might all have high end tights and 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 so on um, but I, but in, in terms of sort of allowing ideas to clash, um, I think, you know, I found VMI to be freer than the University of Kentucky, hmm. um, actually. Wow. That's pretty neat. So I, I know quite a few folks that have uh, been to, graduated from VMI. And once you break out of the, the rat line, uh, it's funny how personality, some personalities love, uh, well, they, they end up showing their sadistic side to the incoming rats. <laughs> right. Some are... Um, I, I would imagine somewhat disinterested in rats. And then there are others that uh, feel the need to protect the rats in some cases. Right. I think the name is rat daddy for the ones yep. that protect the rats. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which one of those three were you, or is there a fourth category I'm missing? Yeah. I was probably somewhere but in sort of category two and category three. Uh, <laughs> not, not sort of not, not, not engaged or, uh, you know, between not engaged and rat daddy. Uh, if you, um, uh, if you will, so yes, yeah, so somewhere, somewhere between those two. Um, and, and again, too, I think, at, I think in VMI too, I had, a, a, a you know, I, uh, I relished opportunities to sort of challenge conventional wisdom, um, if you will. Um, so, you know, I always say, Hey, why do we do it that way? And, um, you know, is this really the best way? And, um, so yeah, so yeah, there too. Uh, I like to um, um, I, I like to sort of poke at the system, and and again, you know, less to, you know, challenge authority. I mean, it's so again, this sort of you know challenge authority. Uh, I had very few demerits, uh, and um, I didn't walk a penalty tour until my senior year. Uh, so that uh, so that, uh, that that should tell you that I'm not into challenging authority. Um, but I, but I, yeah, but I do like to sort of poke at things and ask questions and why do you do it that way and and on and on and on. How many demerits do you need for a penalty tour? Um, well, so it's less about that and more about sort of the severity of what, you know, the severity of what, you ah. know, what you, uh, what you did. Um, but, but suffice to say that um, it's relative, I mean, not that it's unheard of. Um, most people walk penalty tours way before their senior year. Uh, and I, I managed to, I managed to, uh, uh, to not walk any until my, until my, my senior year. So that tells you something about that. I, I tend to be relatively on the straight and narrow with authority. <laughs> do, do, do some folks make it through without any penalty tours? Um, it's rare. Uh, it's a, so, so, so supposedly George C. Marshall did, for example. Um, uh, supposedly, 
Uh, and I think I, you know, you, you, you hear stories, you know, once or yeah, it's, it's doable, but it's rare. Uh, and that's probably, you're, you're probably, you're probably more lucky than good uh, <laughs> at that stage. I won't ask you why you had a penalty tour your senior year or, or two. Uh, what was your major at VMI? Uh, international studies. Okay. Were there a lot of folks in that major in, in your class? Um, no. So, so at the time, international studies was actually a very small major. I think there was like 40 of us. Uh, but it was into, I, was actually, I was actually down there ooh, about a month ago, and now there's like 300 of them. Um, oh, so boy. it's a um, – yeah, so it's a – um, it's a major that has uh, uh, that has grown quite a bit, uh, um, and it was an interesting time to uh, to do it. So, so nine eleven happened um, when I was a second classman, so that's junior. Um, um, so then, obviously, things sort of started happening in the world, uh, if you know, if, if you will, after that. So that so that was an interesting um, interesting time to be there um, uh, with with all of uh, with all of that sort of occurring around you, if you will. Yeah, a lot, a lot of American, I imagine a lot of the world started to look outside of uh, the, their countries. Uh, and I, I know I certainly felt like I did. And I started becoming a lot more uh, educated around what was happening outside of our, our borders, which right. I, I think is generally a very good thing for, for right. citizens and countries to do. Yep. H- having that be, be the spark, though, not, not the greatest spark. I wouldn't wish that spark on, on any country. No, indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, all right, international studies, and then did you go to Kentucky right away, or did you get into the work? Uh, no, so, no so, I, so I took a little bit of a break. I had, uh, um, I had an, um, uh, I had an idea uh, that what I really wanted to do uh, was humanitarian work. Um, so, um, uh, so I actually went to Canada uh, and started working at the Canadian Peacekeeping Center hmm. uh, in uh, in Nova Scotia where I discovered I did not want to do humanitarian work. Uh, and, uh, and, and instead, then, so I sort of piped about, and then it's like, you know, one, you know, one, one way to get to the next stage is, is obviously to do, you know, to do graduate school. And then, then I came back and, and went to university after my six month foray into humanitarian work. <laughs> Can I ask what it was about that kind of work that was not appealing to you? Sure. No. And, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, you know, the work that the humanitarian community, you know, God, God bless them. Um, um, that is, uh, th- that's important. Um, um, you know, what they do around the world. Uh, it was, I, I was actually more, uh, the community was not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and I found actually it was far more what I thought, at least what I saw of it. And again, my, you know, my experience was limited, but nevertheless, uh, um, surprisingly insular community in the sense that uh, it seemed to be a lot of sort of, they went to all these countries, but they seem to be mostly talking to other humanitarians. Um, rather, So, you know, again, if you sort of look at the passports, right, there were people from all over from, you know, from Europe and Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America and Asia, and they'd all gone to all these impressive schools and, uh, uh, and, and so on. But, you know, if you sat them down, um, they basically sort of believed the same thing. Um, so it was, a, it was a, you know, rather sort of insular, um, um, insular community. And, and, uh, and I guess I, I was expecting a far more sort of um, um, cognitively diverse community um, in the sense of sort of opinions and, and so on. But, but I, actually, I actually found, uh, uh, I actually found the, um, uh, the, world, the worldview was actually relatively narrow and sort of, you know, if you talk to one of them, uh, you, you know, you, you probably ask, you know, odds are you sort of have a pretty good idea of what the community was thinking more broadly. Uh, and, and that sort of just intellectually was not, 
uh, uh, I wasn't done with that. That's it. Doesn't sound appealing, uh, and it almost uh, ironically sounds like collectively that community. And I, and I don't want to color the entire community, but it sounds right. like one of the themes could be for part of that community that they're not super empathetic. Um, so, I mean, so, I, so I think they are, um, and they tend to be very much sort of they're they're on a mission, um, and and certainly you know they don't get paid very much, uh, and 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 I think another thing to to respect them for is you know they do they do dangerous work, um, and again and certainly in the sort of not you know post nine eleven period uh, it got you know it got to be increasingly dangerous work. In fact, two of uh, um, two of the people that I worked with up there actually were you know were later killed in Afghanistan uh, mm. by uh, by the Taliban. Um, so, so in that sense, sort of, there's um, no no lack of idealism and no lack of bravery because they they go out and do what they do, and they don't carry weapons, and they don't have escorts, and they don't come with ballistic vests, and uh, and so on. So, so in that sense, sort of, no no lack of individual bravery uh, and and uh, and idealism um, in, in in that sense. But 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 yeah, but sort of intellectually, I found it rather narrow, uh, if you will. All right. Uh, let's talk about University of Kentucky and what you learned there, and then we're going to talk about uh, your, your book for for most of the rest of uh, sure. Our time. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so yeah. So came to you know. It, it, apparently, um, I only go to um, I only do education in places called Lexington. Since I went from uh, uh, <laughs> I did not make I went, that connection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, since you know, I went from Lexington, Virginia, to Lexington, Kentucky, um, uh, for, uh, for for graduate school. You know, it's interesting. And again, like I certainly enjoyed it, and I, and I thought you know it was a good good education. But they have this uh, they had this accelerated program, so you actually do your master's in you know eighteen months, um, which meant which means in some ways. I don't have much memory of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I sort of went in and did my, you know, d- did the study, and again enjoyed it very much. I had great professors. It was a, you know, great program. Um, but in terms of sort of getting to know the region or getting to know the city and and so on, I, you know, I, I uh, um, you know, I must, um, uh, I must admit that my my memory is, is actually rather, you know, my memory is a bit of a blur. Um, and same thing, sort of. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of uh, folks that go to University of Kentucky are, you know, they're, uh, they're sort of gung-ho about it. Um, and again, I, 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 I like the school. Um, I thought, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, it, it was, you know, time well spent. Um, but, but I didn't really have time to sort of, let's call it sort of socially connect. Um, so it's one of those sort of when I meet other people who went to Kentucky and they're all excited. And, and I'm sort of like, yeah, no, it was good. Uh, uh, but, but again, that, that says more about me than it does about, you know, University of Kentucky. Uh, I, you know, I, I certainly came away very pleased with it, but it was, but it was this sort of whirlwind 18 months. And what um, was the program? What, what were you studying? Um, so they have a school called the Patterson School for Diplomacy and International Commerce. Uh, and then they have a couple of sub-concentrations. So I did, um, I did national security. Um, um, so a lot of sort of military science, operations analysis, grand strategy um, um, and, uh, and and so on. And then they had, you know, they had a diplomatic track and they had a trade track and and so on. But I, I, I went full in on, on national security and, and did a lot of sort of defense and military affairs kind of stuff. What, what was it about defense that uh, was appealing to you? Or um, yeah, well, so, so, so part, part of it had to do with 9-11, um, 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 even though, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're a couple of years removed uh, at this point. So part of it was 9-11, that's, you know, this, you know def- defense and national security is actually important. And, and you know, really bad things can happen um, if we don't care about it. 
Um, but you know, another part of the, you know, and, um, and I, I still actually haven't, you know, no one has to this day, no one has challenged me on this. Um, I challenge you to find another domain, um, um, where you get to sort of consider so many different sort of aspects, right? There's mm. a, there's a, um, um, if you're going to do defense, you are, you know, in one way or another, you are dealing with technology economics, history, psychology, uh, uh, and, and probably another, you know, another, another couple of topics, right? Um, um, and I can't come up with another domain that sort of allows you, uh, and, you know, and you may, you know, whatever you know, role you're in, you may be dealing more, you know, with um, technology side, or you may be dealing more with the strategy side, with the psychology side, right? Deterrence is nothing more than psychology at the end of the day. Um, uh, but I, I can't come up with another domain where you sort of where you are allowed to range over such a broad spectrum of of factors. Uh, and, and again, I, I make this statement quite a bit and, and no one has uh, no one has, you know, uh, uh, no one has proven me wrong yet uh, or, or sort of, you know, mention a domain where you get, you know, where you get to do so many different things all at once. No, that's uh, that's a fascinating way to think about it. It gives you. Not, not only diversity, but each one of the things is so rich uh, and certainly opportunities to improve uh, along all those divisions or all those notions for the sake of uh, security. Yeah, that, right. that's, that's a great way to think about it. I, I certainly don't have a challenge that pops into my head, but I will give it some thought. <laughs> Good. All right. So you wrote a book and uh, I, I read it right away. I will tell you uh, it was a book that I read pretty quickly because I stayed with it. I, I, I enjoyed reading it. Like you, I grew up uh, in a Cold War world. Uh, my, my dad was not uh, in the Swedish Navy, but he was in the American Army. Uh, and so I, when I saw the title, I, I immediately became fascinated. The title is The New Battle for the Atlantic. And then your, your subtitle for the book is Emerging Naval Competition with Russia in the Far North. And you published in 2019. And so we, we need to think about it in that context. Uh, pre-pandemic, certainly pre-Russia uh, significantly uh, engaging Ukraine in um, what I would call kinetic fighting or, or uh, mm -hmm. only trying to take over what appears to be the eastern third of Ukraine. Um, what inspired you to write the book or, or what was what was super interesting about the topic for you? Yeah, no. So it's actually it was it was interesting to me because no one else seemed to be talking about it. Um, right. So, um, so after, you know, after Kentucky and I sort you know, I moved to Washington and I, I started sort of, you know, dabbling in the broader defense community. Um, and then I, you know, I ended up at the, um, at the Atlantic council, which is obviously, you know, one of the big DC think tanks, you know, specifically focused on, uh, the transatlantic relationship and NATO and, and the U.S.'s role in Europe and, and so on. Um, um, and, you know, I, when I joined, um, um, you know, again, it was sort of the arrow counterinsurgency. So it was all about Afghanistan and NATO's role in Afghanistan and, um, and so on. And then a little counter piracy, you know, around the Horn of Somalia. And, and you know, so th those were kind of the stuff that I was, that I was working on and, um, um, and the sort of, and the, the sort of juices that I was stewing in, uh, in with, you know, visitors coming in, delegations from Europe and going to NATO and, and so on. Uh, but then, of course, you know, things changed in 2014 with, uh, you know, Russian, you know, takeover of Crimea. Um, um, and then it's sort of, you know, back to uh, uh, back to sort of competition with um, with Russia. 
Um, and it sort of stood out to me that sort of a lot of those, you know, very understandably so, because we're talking Eastern Europe, right? So that's a land domain. So it's very understandable. But I think, but I think it also betrays a little bit that that was sort of where NATO had been for the last 20 years was the ground domain, um, um, right, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and certainly, you know, there, you know, there were Navy and Air Force operations, but they're you know, very much supporting land operations. Um, so I think that sort of, you know, betrayed a lot sort of where everyone's head was at. And, and obviously, you know, the trick, you know, anywhere, I think, um, um, uh, in order to sort of be noticed or, or to say something interesting is, you know, you don't want to be the be the guy or gal who says me too. Um, right. And there was a lot of people writing and talking about, you know, NATO in the ground domain in the Baltics or Poland and and so on. And, and all all very important um, um, and uh, and so on. But to me, it's just like, you know, no one's talking about the maritime domain um, and, you know, what's you know, what's there. Um, so I found so I found a little bit of a I found a little bit of a niche there that no one else no one else was in um, at the time. Um, and then frankly, you know, there was a little bit of a personal, you know, I grew up in a Navy family, um, right? So I guess I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a naval instinct, uh, uh, if you, um, if you will, as well. And then, and then the last but not least, and it's one of the things that I've, you know, enjoyed the most about my work is that I've, you know, I've had a couple of incredible, for, <laughs> for some reason, at some point, uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps took a liking to me. Uh, and, uh, and, and what I did, and they started inviting me out to sort of observe, you know, sort of embed in exercises and stuff like that. So I've, I've had over the years, I've had these incredible opportunities to go out with the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, and embed and sort of observe exercises. And, you know, so I've been on, I've been on carriers underway. I've been on amphibs underway. I've been on frigates underway. Uh, I've flown in Ospreys. I've flown in super stallions. Um, uh, I've done catapult shots off of carriers. And um, so at some point, the Navy and the Marine Corps took a liking to me. Um, uh, so I sort of, you know, sort of maintained a, a, a naval connection. Um, um, and yeah, and, and at some point, it was just like, you know what, there's a there's a missing piece here that no one is, no one is talking about. Um, and so I, so I decided to uh, decided to write this book. Yeah, I, I imagine Russia in economically good times, would love to have a powerful Navy. Uh, but what, I, I guess, what's your assessment when you wrote the book of the Russian Navy versus uh, maybe what your assessment is today of the Russian Navy without getting into yeah. the, the gory details and things we shouldn't talk yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I, mean, I, I think, um, um, you know, I think that, you know, the Russians, the Russians are not stupid. Um, I think they are, I think they are resource informed. Um, and you know, as you said, there's no there's no denying that the Russian Navy of today is not the Soviet Navy. But but if you look at sort of you know what they have developed, um, it is not the sort of let's do the Soviet thing one more time except with a smaller fleet. Um, it is very much um, um, one uh, that is uh, that is cruise missile focused um, uh, and staying relatively close to home. But but if you're you know with the ranges of modern cruise missiles, you actually don't have to leave very far from home. Uh, and you can actually reach most of Western Europe and Northern Europe and, um, and, and so on. So, you know, one of the part, you know, one of the key points on my book, um, is to sort of, Hey, you know, if you, if you think that if there's a war between Russia and NATO, the Russian fleet will come out and meet the American convoys and sink them all, you know, forget it. Uh, you know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Uh, what's gonna happen is that the Russian Navy is gonna, um, the Russian Navy is gonna stay pretty close to home. 
Uh, but from there, they can hit ports, they can hit airports, they can hit command and control nodes. And, you know, if you do, um, American reinforcements into Europe become a whole lot harder. Uh, you know, if you can't, if you can't fly things in, if you can't ship them in, if you can't, con you know, if you can't command, you know, command, you know, if you can't do command and control of forces, uh, then you're sort of in a, uh, uh, you know, then, then you're in a pickle. Um, so that's, so that's long for saying, I think the, the Russian Navy has a, has an extended A to A D role. Um, if you, you know, you hear a lot about Russian air defenses and, and so on. Um, uh, but I think what, what, the, what the Russians have in mind is for the Navy to, to play an extended, um, uh, anti-axis area denial, um, role. Um, and what we've seen so far in Ukraine, um, it's interesting. Um, I think we need to be mighty careful uh, about the, about the conclusions we're we're drawing uh, at um, uh, at this stage. Um, it seems actually, from my vantage point, it actually seems that well. First, I think we need to uh, we need to establish that uh, the Ukrainian the Russian war plan for Ukraine is not the Russian war plan for Na uh, war plan for NATO. Um, right, that you know that's very very different, and and I've been struck by that actually the Russians are actually holding back a lot of capabilities. Um, and um, I'm speculating here, but I think a reasonable speculation uh, why they're holding back some of these, you know, high-end air um, um, and, and so, you know, uh, precision guided munitions uh, is because they're still concerned about escalation with the US and NATO. Um, and, and, and they're looking to hold some of that back in, ca in case this escalates. Um, and they actually need to fight the U.S. and uh, um, U.S. and uh, uh, and, uh, and and NATO. Um, uh, I think another thing that we need to be mindful of is um, I think we are all um, the prime audience for a Ukrainian information operation, um, which is you know obviously very much you know David is beating Goliath, and we should all get in on it. Uh, having said that, I don't blame them. I think it's a brilliant info op. If I were them, I would do the same thing. Um, um, and that doesn't mean that I don't think we should support them. I think we should support Ukraine. But in terms of, but in terms of sort of conducting analysis based on that info op, uh, is is probably um, um, uh, probably risky. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't blame them. I get why they're doing it. I would do the same. Who, whoever is doing social media for the Ukrainian government, you know, deserves uh, uh, deserves some medal. But it doesn't. But it doesn't mean that it's a good basis to do military analysis off of. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, I, I'm. I have some decently educated guesses about what Russia. And I don't want to say in game. I'll just say what, what is their short to moderate term objective um, with this action in Ukraine? Right. Well, I was thinking. So I, I think that there was a. So I think. Well. So I think there, um, I think there was an initial end. You know, I think they had an end game in mind when it started, um, which was you know which was far more expensive, right? And I think that was to you know topple the government uh, and and basically, basically um, um, you know get a um, 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 you know establish another sort of you know Belarus um, um, that you know that responded to uh, to Moscow. Um, uh, what I think they're looking for now is you know far more modest, right? Which is to um, um, which is to, you know, which is to hold and, you know, hold for the long-term terrain in Eastern Ukraine. So I think that's the, uh, that's the end game. So obviously this is, you know, massive Russian miscalculation. Um, but, you know, I would say on the other hand, and, and again, I actually make this point in the book, 
um, that if you go back historically, um, this actually isn't all that unusual or sort of, like, uh, you know, the sort of this kind of sort of like major, uh, you know, major miscalculation as a uh, as sort of as a basis for a war. Um, uh, because right on, on paper, it makes no sense. But but again, if you look at it historically, this actually happens with some frequency, right? I mean, think, you know, Argentina thinking that the Brits won't mind if they take the Falkland Islands, right? Uh, Saddam Hussein thinking no one will mind if he takes Kuwait. Um, the Japanese thinking uh, they might have, it's a long shot, but they may be able to scare off the United States um, if, if they sort of impose shock and awe in uh in in pearl harbor and, and you know, and sort of end the and the list the list goes on uh so i think in that sense uh i mean i i'm you know i know there, there's almost become this sort of consensus around that putin is crazy and this is idiotic and 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 so on but you know i would actually point to that actually this is you know it's it's tragic um obviously uh but this time of this this sort of sort of strategic miscalculation is actually not that uncommon um historically and, and again i and again i you know i I make this point in the book and, and um, you know, I certainly don't predict the Ukraine war, uh, you know, or, or anything like that. But I do, but I do sort of respond to the, to the critics that say that, hey, you know, a Russia-NATO war, that's insane. You know, just sort of just look, look on, you know, look on paper, you know, NATO is so much more militarily powerful and Russia is weak and, you know, how could this ever happen? Um, and I sort of make the case that, you know, yes, on paper, that's correct. Um, but but uh, but historically, countries miscalculate, um, you know, based on misunderstanding signals or not getting a signal at all, um, or you know, or you know, what um, what what have you. So so in that sense, um, I I um, I find the Russian uh, uh, um, the Russian behavior is, is again I'm I'm obviously not sympathetic, but uh, uh, I am more understanding of it, or sort of I I can imagine how they got there. Um, uh, because I know how other countries have gotten there historically. No, that, that's a great uh, set of examples you, you gave there. And yeah, you, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, most wars have started over gross miscalculations from uh, one entity or multiple entities. I, I I don't think Putin's crazy. I don't. I obviously don't know the man. Uh, my guess is he is very prideful, and that extends to uh, pride for his country. And he would uh, love to expand. Uh, the country's reach and their influence uh, in in small, what feels like smallish ways to me as an American. Uh, but I'm, I, I don't know what it's like to sit uh, at the Kremlin uh, thinking about these sorts of things. But it, I, I can't imagine Putin is bold enough to actually do something similar to a NATO country like Poland, as an example. I can't imagine him going uh, into Poland uh, with a, a war mindset. Right. Um, and, and again, like I said, on, on paper, that makes perfect, you know, but, but again, I think, you know, and, and, you know, I'm speculating here, but I think you can imagine a, um, I think, you know, not today, but you can imagine this, you know, I, I think one can imagine a scenario sometime in the future. Um, maybe the U S is off working a different crisis somewhere else, you know, in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the Pacific or what have you. Um, Europe, you know, Europe appears weak and, uh, and divided and so on. And so then, you know, that a future Russian government is sort of, you know, it's high risk, but if we do it, we have broken NATO, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and this could work. Uh, and, and in fact, again, I think, again, I don't know the man I'm, I'm not in Moscow, but again, I think you can, if, if you are Putin, 
if you are Putin in Moscow in say early January, and you sort of look at the world uh, and you go and sort of if you work your way around, so the U.S. you know just had this you know terrible exit from Afghanistan, which was a uh, you know uh, you know absolute circus. Um, and the only thing the U.S. talks about is that it wants to get to China uh, and it doesn't want to deal with Russia because all they want to do is get to China. So maybe they don't care about Europe anymore. Uh, Angela Merkel is gone and they have this new untried chancellor in Germany. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is going into an election, so he's consumed by that. And Boris Johnson, uh, um, he's trying to deliver Brexit. So he's consumed. Uh, he's consumed with that. And, and whatever whatever I do. They really seem to want that, you know, oil and gas that I'm providing, and they seem really hesitant to do anything that would endanger that. And last but not least, the last four times I've used military force, I won. Um, right. So you can, I, I think you can sort of build a believable story how you get to, huh? The, um, th this could work, um, um, and and uh, and uh, it's a little risky. Um, but this could work and the sort of and the, the, the strategic benefits that would you know, accumulate to me, um, you know, are immense. Yeah, and I think with the, taking that risk comes the, the possibility that nuclear weapons are involved and, and whether they're tactical nukes or strategic nuclear weapons, that, that's horribly scary for everybody on Earth. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not just yep. an American fear. It's, it's a fear of. All mankind. Right, right. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's a, you know, um, and, and again, you've seen this historically too, that, you know, th there is a, you know, I think there is an element of self-deterrence, right, um, that we are concerned about these things. And, and, and certainly, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, avoiding escalation and, and so on. But, but it's interesting, you know, going back to the 19th, and, um, and by the way, I'm not advocating we joined the war in Ukraine. Uh, I, I think what we're, what we're currently doing sounds about right to me uh, in terms of providing weapons and training and, and so on. But if you go back to the 1930s and look at sort of French and British reluctance um, to challenge Hitler, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons was that, you know, there was this new concept of strategic bombing, um, right? Um, and, uh, um, and in the 1930s, um, there was this sort of, you know, if um, uh, strategic bombing means that, you know, you will strike fear in the population and they will topple the government uh, and the war will be over, uh, right? It's sort of 30 minutes after the first German bombers appear over London, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the British people will beg, for, uh, will beg for the British government to stop the war and so on. Um, and, then, and obviously, you know, then World War II happened and we know that's not how, you know, that's not how strategic bombing turned out. Um, but, you know, but, but that, sort of, that sort of thinking was, you know, certainly part of sort of, ooh, let's not push this to a war because strategic bombing sounds terrible. Um, um, so um, so, so may, maybe if we just give Hitler this, um, you know, he will be satisfied and we can live another few decades without a war. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Hitler, and I don't know what the British or French or American governments or even the Russian government knew about his uh, intent to basically take over the world. Um, I mean, he certainly showed his cards later on in the war. Uh, Putin seems to be more regional. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but once again, you and I both said we, we don't know the man. So who, who really knows? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, no. And, and look, I, I'm, um, you know, it, it's always, you know, it's always hazardous to compare things to Hitler. Uh, and, and again, in, in this particular case, it was more about sort of the dynamics between countries rather than sort of the, 
um, you know, the man, uh, you know, the, the man himself. Um, but obviously, the, the issue here is this, and, and I agree, he is more regional. But obviously, the, the issue, the issue here is um, um, countries, countries who he uh, who he considers to be, um, you know, the Russian near abroad um, are today US allies, they're EU members, um, and so on. And, you know, um, um, the Europeans and the US together, you know, built a built a European security order uh, where you don't do this kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, that is clearly displeasing, uh, to, uh, to Mr. Mr. Putin, but, but yes, so let, let's put this in perspective. No, I, I don't think he's bent on world domination, uh, <laughs> um, so to speak. Well, let's, let's certainly hope not because to your point, he, he has not brought to bear everything that he has, uh, in his country's arsenal. Right. And, um, I, I, I think we're, everybody's happy that he at least hasn't done anything beyond what he's already done. Indeed. All right, so Magnus, um, this is something we do with most of our guests. It's uh, it's a little different. Um, it's meant to be a little more revealing about you as a person. Uh-huh. So imagine you are a talk show host for one one episode only. It lasts for about an hour. You get to bring three guests. Ooh. Um, one guest, female, one male, and one musical group or or uh, soloist. And they can be alive or dead. They can, uh, the, the, your show can be thought provoking. It can be entertaining. It can be funny. It can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, th- these can be people that you know, people you don't know, uh, famous, not famous, uh, et cetera. Who would be on this one time only talk show? That you're wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I have to, I have to admit, uh, it's not. My question originally, it's my, one of my buddies. All right. Well, it's a great, and it's all, yeah. And it's also, it's, uh, it's a bit of a stumper, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, I don't think this is actually going to happen. This talk show is actually not going to happen. So I don't know. One can always dream, right? Yeah. Uh, ha, <laughs> <laughs> huh, interesting. Uh, so this would be, well, this would be highly disparate. This, this will be, this will be a, this show would never sort of hang together. Uh, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, uh, for the women, um, Margaret Thatcher would be fun to talk to. Uh, uh, and, and actually, you know, it's one of these things, you know, that I've sort of nerded out on and, and actually sort of her decision-making around the Falkland Islands, uh, uh, is, is, um, uh, and, and then her decision around Falkland and, and then actually also sort of, you know, whether, you know, whether you agree with it or not, you know, she set her country off in a different direction. Um, you, you, um, um, and that's just sort of interesting how you sort of affect that kind of political change. Uh, so the woman I think is, is Margaret Thatcher. Um, the man is probably George Lucas. Um, uh, uh, because just like John Watts, I'm a huge Star Wars, uh, Star Wars fan. Okay. Um, yeah. And I would love, and you probably, you you probably need to get a couple of beers in him. Um, but I would love to hear what he, what he thinks of all the new stuff that has come out, um, uh, what, what he really, what he really thinks of it. Um, music, huh? I'm going to, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of one of those, like I'm a casual music guy. Like I don't listen. You know, so it's funny. Um, um, I listen to country when I drive, but I could not tell you who I'm listening to. Uh, um, um, so I'm going to have to, yeah, I, I'm just like, it's like, I, I like having music in the background. It's not that I sort of run the other way, 
and I always sort of tune to country radio when I'm out driving because it's just great driving music. Um, but you know, you could hold a gun to my head, and I, I couldn't, you know, in order to save my life, I couldn't mention, I couldn't mention who I'm actually listening to. You're probably better off not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> but some so country, you, country yeah. musician, that, yeah, that works. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but so you know, you, you can skip the musicians, and we can have a longer conversation with Margaret Thatcher and George Lucas. Nice. <laughs> By the way, I Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, my impression of her. And I think I think she was the prime minister. I'm guessing when I was a kid, she mm -hmm. she seemed like a, uh, a a brilliant, tough, uh, very thoughtful, uh, and and I've used this word a couple other times, but but a, a lovely person. Like she, yep. she seemed to have a lot of great qualities that uh, I wish people that I knew uh, possessed. Yeah, for sure. Seems seem like a total package for a politician for yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah, no, and, and like I said, I mean, it's incredible. You, know, you 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 can agree or disagree with the new direction, but but the sort of but um, the, uh, the political change is fundamental. Uh, um, um, and and again, that's just sort of interesting how you how you get that done. Um, and then you can agree or disagree with that new direction for the country. Uh, but just a sort of sheer act, like how do you be right? Because that that takes that takes strategy, that takes tactics, that takes sort of sheer force of personality um you know if you will um and then you know i don't mean you speak you know sort of you know closer to sort of my professional life um um uh, because it was not a given thing um that britain was going to go and take back the falkland islands um um right um but they but they also you know would you know turn out to be a you know strategic miscalculation by argentina um but at, um but at the time you know there was you know it was not a given that they were going to do that all right, I, I hadn't planned on doing this because uh, I didn't know you were a Star Wars guy. What Star Wars character do you most relate to, and which one is your favorite? Oh, um, I think my favorite is Han Solo. Um, um, uh, so he's probably my he's probably my favorite. Um, I like, um, gosh, she. Um, Lead, she lead she was the lead I, mean, I just can't remember that. she was the lead character in rogue one uh yeah i've i've watched the original three and i, I really didn't follow okay no, there's, yeah there there is a there's uh there's a uh, marvelous female lead character in rogue one uh uh who um it'll um it'll come to me but yeah anyway, but um han Solo is my favorite um and and you know she also sort of questions conventional wisdom, uh, if 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 you will. Um, everyone, you know, every everyone else says no, this can't be done, and the Death Star is impregnable, and and she sort of why don't why don't we go steal the plans uh, <laughs> and see if we can find a weakness. So uh, let, let's end with uh, talking about your family. Is any family members uh, in the U.S. or did they? Did everybody stay in Sweden? Yeah, I'm 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 the only one over here. So I got two two parents and an uh, and an older brother uh, over there. Yeah, so they're 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 all they're all over there. Um, and it's one of those you know, you know, thank the Lord for modern technology. You know, unlike the 1800s, it's still relatively easy to keep in touch, right? You know, so I call them a couple. You know, we you know we zoom and we call, and I, I you know I send pictures of my kids to them, and you know, so thank thank God for modern technology. That means that you can sort of stay in touch. That's awesome. Tell me about your family in the, here in the states. Uh, so I got uh, uh, got a wife and uh, wife and two kids. Uh, so I got a I got a six year old and a and a ten year old. Uh, so you know they're both 
uh, a boy, a, a boy and a girl. Um, uh, so they're both, you know, uh, uh, they're they're both uh, in sort of interesting ages. So obviously, the the ten year old is growing up quickly, and it's sort of mom and dad aren't cool anymore. It's all about friends and summer camps and so on. But you know, the the boy is still in that age, but sort of dad is a superhero, uh, if um, if you will. And then uh, and then my my wife is a teacher. Uh, out here in Loudoun County, uh, originally from uh, originally from from Texas, um, actually, and her um, her family is half Irish and half Mexican. Um, uh, so I you know I, I tend to joke you know I, I joke that my wife is hot blooded and hard drinking, uh, <laughs> and that was sort of, that's sort of the me- that, that's sort of the mix you get when you when you combine Irish and Mexican. Wife, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your wife's name? Uh, Rita. Rita, and then your your uh, son and daughter. What are their names? Uh, so my daughter's name is Kate, uh, and then uh, my son actually has a uh, Swedish Bengt, which is the the Swedish version of Benedict. Okay. Uh, and that was actually that was actually my grandfather's name. So we we passed on the name to him. So, but I I, I suspect when he gets to first grade, that's quickly going to get converted into a Ben, uh, or or something like that. Is Kate with a K or a C? With a K. I'm I'm asking for my uh, friend who's going to do the write up. Oh God, uh, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, and then please, I, I can't pronounce your son's name. Bank, banked. Yeah, banked. So Bravo Echo November Golf Tango. Okay, got it. Okay, that's a very cool name. Maybe he keeps it. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, maybe. I, I highly suspect that it's going to turn it. You know, uh, his friends are going to turn it into a Ben before I know it. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. It's the first three letters. Right. Yeah. And by the way, your ten-year-old uh, thinking mom and dad aren't so cool. It only gets worse. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that eventually they'll come back around, but I have a feeling they'll be well into their twenties before that happens. Uh, and your six-year-old uh, loving dad the way uh, he does, uh, love it while you can. Oh, I, 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 I'm yeah. Uh, no, let, let lesson learned from my daughter. That's sort of like, oh, this passes. <laughs> hey, so do you have plans to write another book? Um, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I may actually want to write, um, I have ha- I have a half cooked plan, uh, about actually doing fiction, hmm. uh, uh, this time around, but it'll, it'll, um, it'll, it'll probably, it'll probably be a little bit, uh, but it will, you know, it will still be sort of defense and national security related. Um, but it might, uh, it might be, might be fiction instead. Um, um, so yeah, so I'm, yeah, I, I have a half baked idea. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. Um, I would love to do something that sort of visualizes for the average American what's at stake in great power competition with China, mm. um, right? I mean, it's because again, it's easy for Washingtonians to talk about strategy and trade and world order and and so on, right? Um, but how do you how do you relate that to sort of the average person and you know um, how if um, if we fail in great power competition against China, how, how will that impact someone in Ohio? How will that impact life in Chicago or Texas or what have you? Um, and I think one 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 way to do that, you know, to to illustrate that might might be with with fiction. But don't don't hold your breath; it's not coming anytime soon. <laughs> well, write, writing a book is—I've never done it, but I imagine it takes quite uh, an effort and uh, is, is is a grind. Yeah, yeah, no, it, um, it is, and and certainly, um, and I, you know, I certainly didn't go into it sort of. I'm going to make a ton of money, you know, very much a passion project, and because I, you know, I thought, you know, I had a story to, uh, to tell, but I, I think I actually did the math and sort of, you know, roughly I spent this many, you know, thousands of hours on it, um, and I did the math, and 
um, you know, uh, and I looked at my royalty checks and I think I concluded that, you know, I would have made way more money if I just got an extra job at McDonald's. Um, uh, but again, but that, but that was, that was not the point. Uh, uh, the point was that it was a, a passion project and I had a story in my head, um, uh, that I sort of, that needed to get out, if you will. And, and I imagine you certainly enjoyed your time, uh, putting the book together than certainly more than you would have enjoyed working at McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's one of the best things. I'm not going to. It's one of the best things I've, you know, I've, one of the best things I've ever done. And, and um, one of the uh, the un, unexpected benefits uh, is actually um, um, I read differently now because mm. I sort of, you know, I, I know how a book comes together. So now when I sit down and read a book, I can sort of like, oh, this is this is the structure, and here's how they, um, you know, here's how the author did this. Uh, and yeah, so you know, un, you know, I didn't, you know, didn't think of it, but an unexpected benefit is that I read differently now. And do you enjoy reading differently now? Yeah, yeah, okay. it, it, it you know, makes it a more, you know, because yeah, you, you can sort of, you can sort of follow the author's logic or what he or she is trying to do, and it's like, oh, I get it. This is how this is how he or she built this, uh, or or structured it this way. Um, uh, so yes, I, I I enjoy it more. Uh, your, your next book that may take a while to put together. I, I love the idea, um, t- telling a story that is technically fiction, but has some real world value and especially that topic, uh, and making it real for, uh, the average American, I, I think is, uh, time well spent. Yeah. I, yeah. I wish you the best putting that together. Thanks. That's the plan. But like I said, don't, again, don't hold your breath. It'll be a bit. <laughs> well, Magnus, uh, it's great talking to you, man. I, I hope you enjoyed this experience. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the book you wrote. I, I, I think I read it literally. I, I've flown a couple different places and I, and I read it over, over those two trips. It was, uh, it was a good read. All right. Great. I'm got, glad you enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, jo- joining and uh, wish you nothing but the best. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. Okay, absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.